On today's show, our guest is Gene Soup. If you've ever wondered how people do business across a cultural divide, or perhaps you've even contemplated entering a new market like China, then you're in for a real treat on today's podcast. As you can imagine, the idea of doing business in a huge market like China is very appealing to many business owners. However, with the language barriers, the logistics, and all of the different personalities and nuances of working in another country, it can be an uphill battle right from the very start. Gene is an American with Chinese heritage and is the founder of EME China Consultants, which is a cross-cultural performance and training organization. He has exceptional business acumen, amazing language skills, and the ability to bring people together in a way that helps everybody achieve the business outcomes that they're seeking. Gene has a truly inspiring go-all-in story, and he'll inspire you to get off the bench, into the game, and kicking goals in no time at all. It's time to stop watching everyone else, back yourself, and go all in. I'm excited he's here, so please help me in welcoming Gene Soup. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass, and this is the Go All In podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache, and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Well, good day, Gene. Welcome to the show, mate. It's great to have you here. Hi, Robert. Been looking forward to this all day. We're on a different time zone, so uh, it's been a lot of hours for me to get on the call with you. All right. Well, let's dive in, mate, and let's make it some fun. I like to start off all of my shows with a quick little get-to-know-you quiz. It helps calm the nerves. It warms us up a little bit. And maybe the folks listening will learn a little bit about you, that some stuff that we don't already know. No okay. particular order here. It's pretty random. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. You ready? Sure. All right, man. Do you prefer coaching or mentoring? I prefer to mentor and I prefer to be coached. Nice one. Nice one. Do you prefer working with businesses or individuals? Definitely with individuals. Nice. Nice. Public speaking or writing? Public speaking. Nice. And I see in all of the background of your videos and stuff like that, there's a piano, but I don't hear any tunes coming out of it. I'm interested to know, can you, obviously you can play that, but can you sing as well? I can only sing to myself, like <laughs> you would do in a shower. Uh, but to be honest with you, I used to be a musician. I'm almost bald now, but oh. my hair used to be down to here. Really, really long. Yeah. I used to be in a heavy metal rock band. That's actually one of the things I did in Shanghai when I would host events at these venues. One of the deals that I made with the venue that gave us the venue for free is after the event was over, the band would come on to play. But in order to convince my event attendees to go into the main room and buy more drinks, I would always go on set, on stage, and sing the first two or three songs and embarrass myself on stage just to help the venue keep these people in and drinking. Talk about going all in, mate. That's an all-in proposition there from being the keynote to being, what were you, the lead guitarist or something like that? No, I would just grab the guitar and I would play these old songs from the 90s that I knew how to play. And, oh, yeah. uh, I didn't learn any new songs. I could just play these old songs that I kind of knew. It was, it was either acoustic guitar or electric guitar. And I would just wail in the microphone in front of my audience who 
who really got a kick out of me being on stage. And were they moving kind of, into the other room to get away from you or was it because they were interested in what you were saying or singing? They just wanted to see me embarrass myself because, <laughs> because on stage, when I'm doing a workshop, I'm kind of like the instructor. And this is a chance for them to get back at me by laughing at me on stage. <laughs> nice one. Nice one. All right, mate, back to the quiz. Would you prefer to be in the office working away or out networking, meeting new people? Definitely out networking and meeting new people. Would you say that you're old school or new age? I would say I'm old school trying to become new age. And that's especially with the technologies that will help me reach a broader audience. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, technology is important in that old school mentality because you've got to leverage your message, right? And the best way to do that is with technology for sure. All right, last one. Serious one. Meditation or contemplation? I would definitely say contemplation. I do that a lot both for my business and for my personal life. And I don't actually meditate, so definitely contemplation. Nice one, mate. Well, thank you for sharing all of that with us. Will people come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in? So if you could, Gene, mate, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? Well, the reason I'm excited to be on the show, because the journey that I'm on now is when I decided approximately three years ago to actually go all in with my own entrepreneurial journey. When I look back at my life, you know, I'm pretty fortunate. You know, my parents escaped war and poverty when they were born and raised in mainland China. And then in 1949, during the Communist Revolution, they were children. So they were innocent bystanders, but they were basically escaping persecution because they were on the nationalist side. So they basically were refugees when they finally made it to Taiwan. And then my parents were both valued education, kind of like the rich dad, poor dad. So my, they all came to the U.S. for graduate school. My father became a professor of physics, and I was fortunate enough to be born in the United States. That gave me a lot of opportunities to do many, many different things. And when I look back on my life, I believe I had the potential to be like Michael Chang. We're the same height. I was incredibly athletic when I was younger, mm -hmm. but I never had a coach and I never committed to any sport. I just played them all. I played them all well, but I never got to the next level. Even in school, I just never committed myself to anything because I, I kind of always felt I don't know what I'm passionate about. I was studying to be an engineer. I only be became an engineer because Georgia Tech was the best school in the state of Georgia and it happened to be an engineering school. So if I could get into Georgia Tech, I would just go to Georgia Tech. But I never had any passion for engineering. So, I mean, we can call it go all in, but I never really kind of knew what I wanted to do and commit myself to that. And that just kind of dragged out for a long period of time where I just kind of never found the right job or the right company. I never knew whether I wanted to start my own business or have the safety of employment. And then something happened three years ago. Well, it actually happened about four years ago. So I finally got my expat assignment in China. So a German company, I know you have some German heritage. I do. A German company hired me to be their Asia Pacific sales director and they wanted to base me in Shanghai. So for me, this was a dream job. This means 
full company relocation, business class back and forth, uh, company pays for your apartment. I get to pick whether I want an Audi or a BMW or a Mercedes. I mean, this is basically the dream job that I wanted. But once I got into that position, I realized that there was a lot of things that I did not know I did not know. I, feel, I realized that there was a lot of lack of awareness in myopia. So the context is I had been doing business in China since 1996. That was my first assignment where I was a country manager in Taiwan for U.S. manufacturing. And over the course of my entire career, all of my responsibilities had something to do with Asia and China. And I speak fluent Mandarin Chinese. My ex-wife is Taiwanese. My current wife is from a four-tier province, four-tier city in Hunan, China. So I communicate in Chinese, not only with business people, but also with friends and also on the most personal level with my spouse. Mm -hmm. You couple that with an engineering degree and a business education and all of that experience. And you would think there is nothing I don't know to be successful in China. And that was a mistake because when <laughs> I finally got this assignment as an expat in China, I did not manage the relationships, the guanxi relationships, I did not manage those as I should have because I lacked awareness. I thought certain things were true, but they were not. I lacked not only self-awareness, but cultural awareness, situational awareness. And I didn't deploy enough empathy to the stakeholders that were around me. So to make a long story short, that led to me saying that I don't think this is the right opportunity. I don't think I can do what you want. And I negotiated a very nice severance package and voluntarily left that opportunity or left that job. But my wife, who I had convinced to quit her job in the US and move to Shanghai, she was happily employed in China. So it would have been unfair for me to say, well, honey, you quit your job and moved to China. And then six months later I said, well, sorry, it didn't work out. Let's both move back to the US. So since she was happily employed, I was in a dilemma. Do I find another job? Do I start my own business? So what I ended up doing is I, I was hired as an independent contractor to be a consultant. Because of my broad experience meeting people and leading projects in China, the consultants who were doing these global projects where it was like a joint venture between a multinational company and a Chinese state-owned enterprise, you know, the criteria from the client is you need somebody who speaks Chinese. But from the consultant, you need somebody that understands our best business practices. So there's not a lot of people that, that can do that. There's a lot of Chinese who speak English, but most of them don't understand the Western best business practices of leading a performance management system, of project mm -hmm. management, yep. of having effective meetings, et cetera. So I started doing that. And then, so the last project I did was 40 weeks. And that means every morning, at 6.30 a.m., I took the train from Shanghai to Nanjing, China. I was on site the entire week, and every Friday evening, I was on the 7 p.m. train back to Shanghai. I did that consecutively for 37 weeks. Gosh. And afterwards, I said, well, consultants pay well, but it's not a life. Yeah. I mean, Monday morning, early, you're on the train, you're on site, five days a week at the customer site consecutively. So 
what I ended up doing is I ended up talking with people around me and everybody basically came to a consensus. I mean, it wasn't a vote, but it was just basically people that I talked to, everybody was just saying, you need to start your own business. You have a unique perspective and business sense with unique language capabilities that you could teach a lot of Chinese people how to be successful outside of China. Mm-hmm. So my business when I was in China was I was teaching at the local universities, MBA level students. I was teaching cross-cultural management to China business executives. And I had developed what I called a cross-cultural performance training, coaching, and consulting company. But it wasn't for people entering China. It was for Chinese who were working at multinational companies who wanted to break the glass ceiling. It was for Chinese enterprises who wanted to sell their products overseas, you know, in North America or in Europe or in Australia. And the goal all in story was at my age, at that point I was in my kind of early 40s, I had already determined that it would be, an, it was not practical for me to seek alternative employment. And if I don't try to do something for the rest of my life while I'm still energetic and capable and, and you know, relatively young, then it's never, that time will never happen. Mm-hmm. And that's when I decided I guess proverbially, it's your phrase. I didn't think of it that way, but I basically went all in. And I can actually have, the way that I went all in is how I made decisions. So I'll give you an example. There was a a guy that I had met in Shanghai. He had been living in Shanghai for 20 years. He's an American. He barely speaks any Chinese. And he does supply chain consulting. He ended up running a supply chain training and consulting company And as a training company, you offer whatever training the client needs. So he has training in addition to supply chain. He has negotiations. He has finance for non-financial managers. He has all these things. And the trend in China is it used to be 15 years ago, if you were a foreigner and you spoke English, that's what everybody wanted. But today, there are so many Chinese employees in these multinational companies, they want their training in Chinese, not in English. So he approached me. He said, you know, we're friends. You just started a training company. I've received this project at Lenovo. Lenovo is the company that bought IBM's ThinkPad. Mm -hmm. They have two days of training in Beijing, two days of training in in Shenzhen. They'll fly you out. You'll get paid. You'll get to make the decision makers. And it'll help you get started with your training business. And to everybody around me, including my wife, because I'm not generating any income. They basically said, you would be foolish not to take this opportunity. Mm -hmm. But I ended up turning it down. And even this American who we speak English with, he's like, Gene, you just started a training company. You have no revenue. Why would you turn this down? And I just basically said, his name is Jack. I just basically said, Jack, you know, I gotta do my own thing. I didn't use the phrase go all in, but I was committed to not just being a freelance trainer where somebody gives me training and I deliver it. I was committed to, based on my own unique experience, based on my own unique perspective, to develop a system of tools and methodologies that can help people do what I call now, solve their China leadership dilemmas. Mm -hmm. That's the book that I'm writing and that's the journey that I'm on. And I've basically gone all in for the last three years. So the business transitioned when I moved back to the U.S. last year. When I moved back to last year, it's basically been a whole year of 
transitioning, rebranding, you know, doing a new website, figuring out what my business model is going to be now that I'm serving non-Chinese doing business in China as opposed to Chinese doing business outside of China. So that's the long of my goal and story. I'm in the middle of it right now. That's fantastic, mate. Thank you for sharing that with us. It, it just, it really shows that if you don't commit to something, you end up going from one thing to the next and kind of never really finding your place in the world. And then sometimes as well, I've had the experience and you probably have as well. When you commit fully to something, you're excited about it. You're excited about your expat job and that's all going well and it seems fantastic, but then it doesn't play out the way that you want it to. And it doesn't play out the way that you expect it to. And I think that going all in is something further upstream from never quitting. There's a difference between not quitting something and going all in on something. And I think if you decide at the start that you're going to really give this a proper shake and you are going to go all in, you're going to burn the bridges and try as hard as you can to make it work. Sometimes you find yourself down the track, halfway down the track thinking, that's actually not what I wanted because it's very, very different. Is that what happened in that expat job? Is it, was it just different, not what you wanted? Yeah, well, the answer to that question is that expat job turned out to be completely different mm. than what I expected. I'm not going to get into the details, but basically the short answer is when I was meeting with the German CEO in Germany, talking about the final arrangements of my assignment, I did not negotiate a license to kill. Right. That means I ended up working with a lot of people that I wasn't sure what my authority lied. So it just created a, there was a lot of conflicts of interest, mm -hmm. but that was my own lack of awareness. Conflicts of interest in China is normal. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know how to manage conflicts of interest uh, to find something where everybody can actually save face, then you're doing yourself and the company that you represent kind of a disservice. So I don't think I actually thought about it in those terms about my assignment, but what I'm doing now, go all in for me as a mindset. Mm -hmm. okay? It's not because only when you have the mindset, it's almost like the secret, you know, you have to have affirmations and you have to be positive and optimistic and you have to always tell yourself that you're going to be successful. You're already successful. It's almost like affirmations that my mindset, I'm already picturing what this success is going to be five years, 10 years out. So all of the bumps and all of the ups and downs and all of the challenges and all of the adversities, it doesn't affect me. It's just kind of like, this is just the nature of the beast. If I can't handle it, then I shouldn't have done this to begin with. I should expect these challenges and difficulties. I should expect these maybe even economic hardships before I start bringing in the real revenue. I mean, these are just things that are kind of built into the psychology of what I think going all in means. Yeah, absolutely. I would completely agree with that. How did you, when you transitioned out of your, your job and you were doing a little bit of work there and then you got offered the training opportunity there, did you know much about business? How did you work with that? I mean, you come from the corporate world and you learn a lot in the corporate world, but running your own business is always a completely different kettle of fish. It's always different to what people expect. And there's such a learning curve there. How did you go with that learning curve in the early stages there? Well, there's two aspects of that question. I think the business aspect was never a challenge for me because I, I managed, I mean, I had 
PLL responsibilities. I was managing separate businesses within a larger business. Mm -hmm. The challenging part of this is basically the entrepreneurial mindset. Suddenly, you're your only resource. You have no access to other resources unless you pay for them. Yeah. Right. The business plan. So when I used to work for companies like Motorola and Philips, whenever you wanted to do something, you had to make a business plan. And then oftentimes you'd have to present it to the investment steering committee and they would decide go or no go. Would they invest in your idea mm -hmm. for yourself? The business plan is even more important. Otherwise, you have no idea what your budget is. You have no idea what your costs are. I've been doing a lot of that just kind of based on intuition. Mm -hmm. And when I look back, and this is what I told Brian Rose in, our, in my interview at the London Real, it's just trying to do everything authentically, trying to grow everything organically, not sacrificing my authenticity at all. It would have never been a sustainable business. It's just too slow. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm in the process now of, putting together a budget and I'm going to actually hire resources to help me do, I guess you can call it digital marketing, but I'm going to be doing, I call it influencer marketing mm -hmm. because at the end, uh, my thought leadership and my influence is what's going to attract people. My unique perspective and the tools that I've developed from my failures in China is hopefully going to help other people doing business in China and other decision makers succeed in China. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Fantastic. What would you say to somebody that was considering leaving the safety net of the corporate world and diving in and doing something for themselves? What are the obstacles there? What would you say to them? Well, I think the biggest obstacle, and, and I'm sure you've probably experienced too, I think the biggest obstacle is balancing that with family considerations. If you're single, then go for it. <laughs> but if you're married and you have kids then you really have to consider what your values are right because being an entrepreneur takes a lot away from family time and even if your spouse supports you 100 percent, you miss a lot of valuable moments with not only your spouse but with your children and, and whatever so that's just an individual decision now i want to modify that question a little bit it's what if you're an entrepreneur and you want to do something in China? Mm -hmm. So if you want to do something in China, there are huge opportunities in China right now. For people who haven't been to China, China is nothing like the old perceptions of China's being a, you know, a state-run economy. It's uh, a communist government. When you land in Shenzhen or Beijing or Shanghai and you hit the streets, you leave the airport. When you leave the airport, it's like you arrived in Singapore or you arrived in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. When you hit the streets and you go to the financial districts and you go to the malls, it's amazing how much commercialism and capitalism is all around you. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese government now is spending, it's just like Australia spending money helping people do business in China or, or, or capture some of that, those opportunities. The Chinese government is spending tremendous amount of money trying to develop service sector businesses, trying mm -hmm. to develop innovation, investing in AI and blockchain and all of the things that China does not control now. You know, low GPS and the mm -hmm. low, low earth orbiting satellites, the internet, 
cellular technology. These are things that were invented and developed outside of the US or outside of China. And that's why the United States and Silicon Valley is kind of still leading the world in technology. But that trend is rapidly phasing because the next trend is artificial intelligence, is augmented reality, it's blockchain applications. These are the things that the Chinese government is heavily vested in. And if you want a piece of the action, go to China. That, that's my advice. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's exciting, man. Is it, is it something that you'd need to be on the ground in China to be doing? Or can you have those ideas and, and just leverage the resources that are there? Or would you advise people to be there? Ideas are never enough. You have to, it's like anything. When you go to China, you have to have some value proposition that you either bring to that market or bring to the people that you are partnering with. So what has changed over the last 10 years? 10 years ago, any foreigner who went to China and wanted to start a business, the fact that you have a foreign face and you speak perfect English, that was almost 90% of your value proposition. Right. That is no longer the case. Mm -hmm. In fact, being a foreigner, not understanding Chinese culture, not speaking any Chinese, not really understanding what's going on in China and where China is ahead of the world and where China is behind in the world. If you just lack that basic awareness, don't go to China. It's flipped on its head, right? From 10 years ago, it's completely done a 180. Yeah. I mean, everything in China is just kind of on steroids. Mm -hmm. The way that the economy is developed, the way that the capitalist system is developed, the way that China's technology leadership is now developed, the way that China's military is developed, mm -hmm. it just develops at a scale and a speed that nobody can anticipate. Unfortunately, governments react too slowly. So, you know, it's not a lot of comfort being an American that as an American, we're going to be able to adapt and react fast enough to the mm -hmm. challenge that China poses on a global stage. And that's just the reality. So, you know, my wife is actually originally born in China, even though we met in the US. So she's always talked about, I'm gonna keep my Chinese citizenship because who knows what's gonna happen in the you next never know. years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> clever, clever. Keep the back door open there like that. That's a good idea. I like that a lot. Yeah. Well, you're talking about entrepreneurialism and the rise of the Chinese economy and those all those fantastic things, which are, are really, really cool. I just wanted to go to the heart of what you do and what you talk about in your videos online and all the stuff that I've seen of you, which is really about developing soft skills across that cross-cultural divide. Can you tell me about soft skills? And if the listeners there haven't really thought of it in the context that you bring it to. Can you just give us a bit of an explanation? Yeah, absolutely. So, so again, it's like your initial speed questions. My business is focused on individuals. So I'm helping individual leaders, individual decision makers, basically make better decisions when they're in China. So how do they do that? So once you go to China, you have to start understanding the complexities of how Chinese culture is different than Australian culture or just the typical Western culture. Now you can read a lot of books, but the thing is when you, when you acquire that knowledge, it really doesn't translate into how people perceive you. Okay. So in the framework that I develop, especially when I'm coaching executives is your primary objective beyond all of your 
real financial objectives is to manage how all the stakeholders in China perceive you, whether it's the employees that report directly to you or your suppliers or your partners. The first thing is called perception management. And the only way that you can really do that is what I call developing the essential soft skills that matter. So this is the foundation. There's two essential soft skills. One is awareness and one is empathy. So awareness includes a whole bunch of things. First of all, it's self-awareness. Are you aware how you are perceived by the Chinese? You know, it's like most Americans lack self-awareness, okay? So Americans go to Europe and there's a stereotype of the poorly behaving American tourist <laughs> in Europe. And so Americans lack the awareness that there is this stereotype. When you translate that into a business context, uh, awareness gives you the insight of as you're speaking and how you're speaking, uh, you are aware of how the other person is perceiving you. So that's one soft skill, it's going in this direction. Mm -hmm. The other soft skill is empathy. You know, when foreigners go to China, they tend to be really judgmental. They complain about Chinese people this, Chinese people that. They complain about the government this and the government that. And they just lack empathy for the individuals that they are working with, especially the Chinese employees. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what does empathy give you? Empathy gives you the insight of understanding what other people actually value and what they care about. So if you have this insight in both directions, awareness and empathy, you understand how you're perceived, you know how other people think and how they are valued, then basically you have clairvoyance in, to be able to achieve the outcomes or create the perceptions that you want, if you want. Okay, so the if you want comes into most people lack the emotional intelligence to create the perceptions that they want. So what I've done is I've broken it up into kind of a framework. And basically, essential soft skills are the things that you develop. The things that you learn, for example, speaking a different language. Let's say you know you're going to be assigned in China, you learn to speak Chinese. Okay, Learning to speak Chinese, everything that you learn from a book or even from your own experiences, these are things that you develop. Okay, So anytime you develop a skill, you can put it in your toolbox. Anytime you go in a certain situation, you can take that tool out, you mm -hmm. can use it. What I always tell my clients is, Knowing how to speak Chinese doesn't mean you know what to say in Chinese, <laughs> right? So you have the things that you develop and the things that you adjust. So the things that you develop and the things that you adjust, none of those affect how other people perceive you. It's like, I have a PhD or I have three PhDs. Does anybody care? The answer is no, okay? The only thing that affects how other people perceive you are the things that you adjust. And the things that you adjust, I call them your AMA values, your attitude, mindset, and approach. So in order to influence perceptions of other people, you have to learn how to make adjustments to your attitude, mindset, and approach. Initially, as you're developing this awareness, you force yourself. It's like you're having a fight with your wife and you force yourself, you know, I know if I say this, she's just gonna get more angrier. If I wanna deescalate this situation, I have to hold my opinion and just acquiesce. Initially, it's hard. But as you go through this process of what I call becoming a master of cross-cultural performance, then the adjustments that create more positive perceptions 
eventually become natural and you develop what a lot of people just refer to as natural leadership. So if I just said, what are the essential soft skills and didn't put it into context, it, it wouldn't have that much meaning. That's why I put it into the whole framework of what I'm trying to help my students and my clients develop. So those soft skills of empathy and awareness, attitude, mindset, and approach and all of those things there, obviously that, that applies to everyday life and to regular business with two English speaking people like you and me doing business together. Those things are really, really important. But I think because there's no language barrier there, there's no spotlight on it. Is it because there's a language barrier there and there's a cultural difference that that's the nuances there are amplified? Is that the reason why you need to focus on those soft skills more? Actually, it's the opposite. When there is a language barrier, people give a little bit more forgiveness for right. mistakes or faux pas or even a lack of cultural awareness. Like you come in as you know, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Australian, you go to China, you know, they don't expect you to understand Chinese culture. Mm -hmm. So if you're aware of how people stereotype you and you exceed their expectations by demonstrating that you're aware of some cultural nuances, that just puts you on a higher pedestal. Right. Now, if you have a common language, that makes it worse because it's all about managing expectations. Just mm. think about arguments that you have with you and your wife or me and my wife. There's no language barrier, right? <laughs> but because we're so deeply connected to one another, the expectations automatically change. Mm -hmm. As a spouse, I expect maximum understanding, maximum forgiveness, maximum support. Even if my, with my mouth and my mind, I would actually say that I don't. In a close friend or a close partner, you expect a little bit less. With somebody in a foreign business environment, the advantage that foreigners have is that the expectations are even lower. That's the opportunity that most foreign business people in China fail to seize because they don't see that as an opportunity. The fact that there's a stereotype of typical Aussies or typical Americans, mm -hmm. if you're aware of that in the context of what Chinese people value, then you can use that to your advantage to create greater trust and deeper guanxi relationships. And that's the nuance that most foreigners miss when they go to China. Really, really valuable information, mate, and really valuable advice. So thank you so much for being so giving and sharing that with us. I just want to shift gears a little bit. Tell me about your podcast. What's it called? Who's it for? What's it all about? Well, my podcast is called the China Leadership Dilemma Podcast. China Leadership Dilemma is something that I've actually coined because of my own experience. Okay, it's basically when a foreigner, whether I speak Chinese or not, lacks self-awareness and we don't know what we don't know, unknown unknowns, and we're myopic. And what that leads to is that leads to an unexpected disappointment. So the most simple example is just when somebody goes on a job interview and they think the job interview went really well and they say, yeah, I I crushed it. I think I'm going to get the job offer. And then the company says, you know, thank you for your application, but we've decided to go another way. Okay. That's an unexpected disappointment. Mm -hmm. That's also a 
China leadership dilemma. Because what that means is you may have felt good about what you said and how you presented yourself, but you weren't empathetic to what the hiring manager actually wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. And therefore you were saying all these things that you thought presented you in a really positive light. And then you were just completely myopic. So my podcast is called the China leadership dilemma podcast. I'm tying solving China leadership dilemmas in with the framework of becoming a master of cross-cultural performance and interviewing people and trying to dig deep in where they perhaps lacked awareness and what was the result and how that can evolve into helping people develop the essential soft skills. So I'm going to go to another subject really quickly. A lot of people ask, how do you develop awareness and empathy? Or how do I learn awareness and empathy? Or do you have any tips? Mm -hmm. So the answer to that question is, I can't teach it and you can't learn it. And there are no tips. <laughs> awareness and empathy can only be developed. Okay, that's something that you have to develop. And the question becomes, well, how do I develop it? What is the easiest way to develop these kind of foundational soft skills? So there are two elements, and this is really, really important. One is to develop awareness and empathy. First, you have to have imagination. But imagination has to be positive. You always have to train yourself to imagine kind of why other people say the things they say, even if they're being, let's just put it this way, even if somebody is being outright racist with their comments, you can still be empathetic and try to imagine why they are racist, right? And then start from there to try to build a bridge. The other is purpose-driven curiosity. Mm -hmm. okay? You have to naturally be curious why people don't share the same value system as you. I use imagination and purpose-driven curiosity to bridge the communication between me and my wife all the time. You have to think about it this way. The opposite of having purpose-driven curiosity is being judgmental. Mm -hmm. And being judgmental of somebody, especially in a cross-cultural context or a cross-cultural situation, is the last thing that you should do. Because if you're judgmental, even if you don't express it specifically, people can sense it. People can feel it. And that is where your attitude adjustment comes into play. So when you're interviewing people, are you interviewing people that have done business in China or want to do business in China? Or is it just interviewing executives and entrepreneurs that are looking to do that? It's a combination of both. You know, my podcast is still kind of getting started. The, the ideal person has done business in China or has. So I've also interviewed a lot of people from a multicultural background. So I interviewed an Indian entrepreneur here in the U.S. He was born and raised in India. Uh, he has now started his own kind of software solutions consulting company. And a lot of the challenges that he faced coming to America, going in the opposite direction, being of the Indian mindset, that's applicable to things that you have to imagine when you go to China. Mm -hmm. uh, I've also interviewed a couple entrepreneurs here who are actually Chinese. And they've been trying to adapt their business model and their methodologies and their mindsets to being able to land American customers or Western businesses. 
-hmm. And they have to deal with a lot of cultural stereotypes. For example, the Chinese kind of company who, you know, she's an entrepreneur. She started at kind of a web design company. She has to deal with a lot of cultural biases. Number one, she's a female. So there's some gender biases. And number two, she's from China and she doesn't speak perfect English. So there are cultural biases. And the tendency is, is people automatically believe that because you're a Chinese business, your prices should be lower. Mm. And that's even, it doesn't really matter the quality of the work or the value proposition. That's just a perception when she's out doing business development or sales calls. So what I try to do is I try to help her understand that in the context of her engagement with prospective clients and how to utilize those gender biases and cultural biases to her advantage, right? To exceed their expectation, to demonstrate another value proposition beyond what they would expect and then be able to close these deals. And, and that's kind of what I get into, but I do it for people going to China. Well, they're in, incredible skills to know and to learn and to be aware about. And I love how there's no way to do it other than to be curious. That's very, very clever because you know anyone can do that. What would you say to a, a 17 year old about to leave high school before they go to university and you're about to kick off into their first job, their first career, their first apprenticeship. What would you say about soft skills in a workplace for the first time? How would that be advantageous to somebody? Well, I guess it could apply to recent high school grads, but uh, this is something that I tell a lot of recent college grads. And, you know, usually, so what I am is I, I try to be empathetic to the person that I'm speaking to. So for the young person who's a recent graduate who doesn't have really any experience, if you start bombarding them with a lot of terms and frameworks and methodologies and definitions, it really doesn't lead to anything positive. So you have to make it as simple as possible. And the same advice that I always give, because to, whether it's high school students or college students, is listening is the skill that you need to work on. But I put a caveat on that. So there's listening, okay? And then there is, but a lot of times people listen until it's their turn to speak and then they speak. And then somebody came up with the phrase active listening, mm -hmm. where you're more kind of conscious about what the other person is saying. You're actually thinking about what they might want to hear. And I've tried to take that to the next level in my training. And I call it proactive listening. Proactive listening is listening with curiosity and listening with purpose and responding with intent that actually connects with your empathy with what the other person values. And it's all part of listening. It's just learning how to listen. Fantastic advice for any of the younger audience listening out there. So thank you for that. What do the next 18 months look like for you, Gene? Is it exciting? Is it more of the same? What's happening? Where are you going? Well, it's always exciting for the next six months. So from a business standpoint, for the next six months, I'm really going all in on building my influence, mm -hmm. which means that I don't expect to generate any online revenue over the next six months. Mm -hmm. It's all going to be about delivering value, building a following, building a tribe, building an email list. So what I'm going to be doing is over the next six months, I'm going to be developing a lot of valuable content that I'm going to be giving away from what digital marketers would call lead magnets. Mm -hmm. right? So I'm going to be doing a monthly so since 2007, I've been invited as a guest speaker or a keynote speaker for something called a Mindset for China Business. My former professor 
at Georgia Tech, when I, where I also did my MBA degree, whenever I go back to Atlanta, he would invite me to lecture his MBA class, Global Executive Business Environments, Global Business Environments, and his Gimba class, Global Executive MBAs. I would just come in and the entire three-hour class would be mine because they were all talking about China. Mm-hmm. So I created this workshop in this keynote called a mindset for China business. I'm now repurposing that and I'm going to be doing this online for free once a month through the rest of the year. And that's one of the things I'm going to do. Next year is when I'm going to be starting to sell some core products. These are like master classes for executives who are doing business in China. These are insider coaching forums for people who are currently expats in China. So the next 18 months is gonna be extremely exciting. It's gonna be building the next stage of my business and starting to monetize when I have enough value that's properly repurposed to deliver to my audience. Fantastic. Well, look forward to uh, seeing what it develops into and how it grows and maybe revisiting on another show to see it blossoming into something pretty significant. Tell me about your daily non-negotiable. What keeps you sharp and focused and motivated each day when you're working on your business? Well, I think the most non-negotiable thing is just basically the journey that I'm on. And that was the example that I gave. You know, when somebody said, you know, here's this opportunity to go to this (laughs) really large Chinese company to do four days of training where you're going to get paid and you're going to get to make the decision maker who hires trainers. I turned that down and I've actually written an article about that. And I just basically call it, uh, I can't remember what the exact name is, but it's something about developing a filter of consistency. So basically I don't have currently, I don't have any resources or people allocated to sales and business development. What I do, and you asked about principles, I am just 100% committed and focused on doing what I'm doing to make all of my IP part of the global lexicon of training executives and preparing them to do business in China. And I use that filter to keep people who aren't interested in that out and then bring in people who might be interested in what I'm doing. So all the clients that I have, and my current clients are mainly universities. Like I was just at a local university giving a keynote to the incoming international MBAs and PhDs of business schools at the local university. And they're going to, they want me to do kind of a speaker series on this mindset for China business thing, because that's what business students want to learn about. I want to know. Right. And that's basically to answer your question, those are my principles. I basically, in business, I want to try to deliver as much value to you. But if you want to actually engage in business, then it has to be aligned with what I'm doing. And it can't be a distraction. Yeah, I find in business, I get very distracted by every other opportunity that comes around the corner. And I would see probably three or four opportunities a week. And I, I think a daily non-negotiable for people is often, you know, exercise, you know, that's a daily non-negotiable for me. I'll do that. But from a business perspective and a daily activity perspective, it's absolutely critical that I don't get distracted or take my eye off the ball, so to speak. Otherwise you end up down a tangent that you just really don't want to be on. And it's just a giant waste of time, right? Yeah. Hey, Robert, do you mind if I uh, ask you a question? Yeah, shoot. Yeah. So uh, this is always interesting. I was just wondering what is your, concept of the Chinese definition of giving and receiving thanks. 
I couldn't, that's a very, very tricky question. And you know what? I was kind of expecting you, I was half expecting you to ask me a question about that type of thing because Australians and Chinese, we're the biggest trading partners that we have. And I mentioned to you a couple of times that I've got a few friends that do all of that. To be completely honest with you, mate, I, I couldn't say, I wouldn't know the answer to that question. And I think it's about, I think I've been in business long enough and I've been in enough sales and done enough business development and in enough negotiations to really try and help everybody achieve the outcome that they're looking for. And to have the awareness that in a negotiation, not everybody always gets what they want in business development. Not everybody always wins the deal that they want in the way that they want to do it. But I think if you're fair, if you're equitable and if you're kind, and if you come from a place of good intentions, I think you can do business with pretty much anybody. Um, I've found it very, very difficult to do business with different types of cultures. And my experience working with uh, Indian folks, as an example, folks that have been born and bred in India and have done business in India and then come to Australia, do business very differently in Australia than Aussies. They're Aussies as well, but their background and their methodology is very different. And the way that they negotiate on prices, on deliverables, on expectations is always different to the way that Australian customers do. So from a Chinese perspective, in answer to your direct question, I haven't really had that much experience. The Chinese folks that I've dealt with have been strictly here in Australia, and I haven't really had the experience overseas. And about saving and giving face and doing all of those things, I couldn't really say other than to, to behave in a fair, equitable way do the right thing and make sure your intentions are always noble and good. Is that, a fa- that must be a fairly general concept that people that haven't dealt with Chinese business before say, is that, is, is that right? Well, first of all, there's no, you know, there's no right or wrong answer, mm. right? Because this concept of face is something that has kind of evolved. And now on a global geopolitical kind of stage, you talk about political leaders giving each other face, you mm-hmm. know? especially with the, the current U.S. president. I mean, if you don't give him face, then he basically goes on an attack, mm. so to speak. But I think I want to share this with your audience, especially because there's so many Aussies who are doing business in China. Mm-hmm. So the giving and receiving of face is really foundational to developing what Chinese call guanxi relationships. So by definition, a lot of times, I mean, you were right. Giving face sometimes is just giving respect. That's one way of giving face. What a lot of foreigners misunderstand about giving and receiving face that the way that the Chinese do it is they don't understand it in the context of Chinese culture. Let me explain what I mean. In Chinese culture, the giving of face is by definition to be disingenuous. Mm -hmm. However, it's deeply embedded in the Chinese culture. And this has business implications. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I have a friend, he's from Britain, he's a, he's a Brit. He's been living in China for five years as a school teacher. He's single, he dates a lot of Chinese women. He dates a lot of women in general. Mm-hmm. And his general, every time we talk, he always says, you know, Chinese women are crazy. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna make this story a little bit shorter. So one time my wife and I introduced him to a really nice Chinese girl, and he really liked her a lot. Mm-hmm. And he basically said, Gene, I could really have a serious relationship with this girl. So teachers have a lot of holidays. And for five years, every holiday, Chinese holiday, 
which are pretty long. He goes on vacation in, throughout Asia. He goes to Thailand, Vietnam, Korea, Japan, whatever. So when he was dating this girl, this Chinese girl, he said, you know, I have this vacation coming up. Do you want to go on vacation with me? It was a Chinese holiday. And she said, you know, I would love to go, but my mom is sick. So I need to go back to my hometown mm -hmm. and see my mom. Well, if you don't understand the context of Chinese culture, then you're, you're amazed why so many Chinese moms are sick. <laughs> and, the, and the reason is, is, so this guy, once he found out that her mom wasn't sick, that she was actually in Shanghai, she didn't go back to her home country or home province, he was livid. He basically started calling this girl a liar. He basically started just complaining, you know, if she felt it was too soon to go with me on a vacation, she could have just told me, we could have talked about it. She didn't have to lie. He just kept on using that word. She didn't have to lie. She didn't have to lie. She didn't have to lie. And I was trying to explain to him and he couldn't even understand. He's been, been in China for five years. I said, that's just a cultural way that Chinese people say no mm. and face. So what does that mean? She gave you the most face-saving way, the face-saving rejection that you can have. She didn't say, we're not ready. She didn't say, I'm not comfortable with you. She didn't say, I don't like you that much. She just said, her mom is sick. And that is literally and figuratively how Chinese people communicate. They don't communicate literally. So as a foreigner, as a Westerner, we think kind of in absolutes, it's either yes or it's no. Mm. But in China, it's all about managing the different shades of gray. It's not about yes or no. It's about understanding what people are actually saying and not focusing on the words. And, and that's just a lesson for people who want to do business in China. Don't focus on the words. Try to be empathetic to what people actually feel in the center. Mm -hmm. Well, that's epic, mate. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And thank you so much for coming on the Go All In podcast and sharing your short story. We really appreciate it. Where can people find out more about you and your business? Well, my business website is emechina.us. And I recently registered a new website that's going to be more of my content, my blogs, my videos, and my podcasts. It's just my name. I'm going to start focusing on myself as a thought leader and and the new website will just be my name, G-E-N-E, -E, middle initial J, H-S-U.com. Yeah, that's how they can reach me. And okay, fantastic. Well, I'll make sure all of those links are included in the show notes. And if you haven't already subscribed to the Go All In podcast, please go to your favorite podcasting app, whether that's iTunes, Google, or something else, and hit that subscribe button. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a comment and a review. And if you don't, that's okay too. We always like to receive feedback and improve the show well thanks again gene that's it for this show thanks for coming on the show mate we really appreciate it and look forward to revisiting this in a couple of months time seeing where it all goes it's very exciting that's it and we'll see you soon bye for now mate all right thanks robert bye-bye